men capable of transmitting the teaching of Christ. These men lived hidden in desert solitudes, apart from the urban ecclesiastical centers. They were sought out nonetheless by men who, recognizing their prophetic grace, by prophetic I mean here, the grace uh, they had to transmit the word of God. Men sought them out, wanting to learn from them how to live as monks. And these apprentice monks called their spiritual father, Abba. Abba, give me a word. The relationship between the father and his disciples was essentially vertical. That is to say, that the father, the Abba, did not seek to attach his disciples to himself, but rather to attach them through himself to Christ the Lord. So there is nothing of the personality cult or of uh, the following of an individual, rather the abbot seeks always um, to disappear in order to leave room for Christ. The model of the abbot is St. John the Baptist, the friend of the bridegroom. And the abbot must always say to himself, I must decrease in order that Christ may increase. And the joy of the abbot is to see his sons grow in intimacy with Christ and in union with Christ. The essential work of the abbot then is to foster the attachment of his sons to Christ as branches to the vine. An abbot does not, after the manner of the leader of a cult, seek to attach his sons to himself, nor does he instrumentalize his office in order to fill up whatever affective deficits there may be in his own life by attempting to satisfy personal needs for recognition and affection. This is disastrous when an abbot instrumentalizes his office in order to attach men to himself, either because he wants to have sons in the natural uh, uh, meaning of the word, or because he wants to have uh, friends, or because um, he, he, he craves, at some level, affection and affirmation. No. If the abbot misuses his office to that end, uh, it's a disaster in any monastery. So, um, the, the verticality of the office, the sacramentality of the office, that the abbot always stands in reference to Christ. No less than other men, when an abbot suffers the terrible midlife crisis, this happens to abbots, happens to, to, to most monks, um, at a certain age, he looks around at his peers in the world and takes stock of his own achievements and failures and gains and losses. And he sees his married contemporaries now not only as fathers but as grandfathers. 
and he observes them growing into the second half of life or the third part of life in the company of a cherished spouse and his own life can at certain hours appear singularly grim and unfulfilling and this is when an abbot every monk can be assaulted by temptations to fill the void by looking for compensations outside the monastery or within it we, we saw yesterday in the life of uh, Don Hossam Dubai, he was very lucid on this point, the temptation to go for an abbot to go outside the monastery to kind of produce himself in the public eye. And so he, he wisely said that he would not go out of my enclosure because he didn't want to become some kind of um, uh, popular figure, and this, this is always a danger, you see. Um, the, the only, uh, it seems to me, uh, the only suitable uh, response to such temptations is to push oneself more deeply into the hidden life, into the hidden life. The abbot must, with lucidity and manly resolve, renounce every temptation to keep for himself in any way souls called to union with Christ. His model is, as I said, St. John the Forerunner, the friend of the bridegroom. A man cannot receive anything unless it be given him from heaven. This is the preaching of St. John the Baptist. You yourselves do bear me witness that I said that I am not Christ but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth with joy because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. The surpassing joy of the abbot joy that makes up for the deprivation of all earthly joys is to lead souls to the bridegroom Christ. Furthermore, I count all things to be but loss for the excellent knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but as dumb that I may gain Christ. Reading uh, recently um, a wonderful little book by the sometime abbot of Farnborough, uh, Don Capole. He, he wrote his own life of St. Benedict, and one of the points he makes in the book is that, uh, and I hadn't realized this, I suppose I knew it at some level, but St. Benedict quotes St. Paul more than any other uh, part of the Bible. I had never realized that. I suppose I had it in my mind that it was the wisdom books and the Psalms. Uh, but in fact, uh, there's this extraordinary reliance on St. Paul, the rule of St. Benedict. I alluded to this the other day, and that was before I read Don Cabral's treatment of the question. But uh, certainly in this first chapter of the Holy Rule, 
his reliance on St. Paul is evident even in the first sentence. That I may gain Christ, says the Apostle. And to this the abbot must add, and gain others for him alone. The abbot, like the master of novices described in chapter 58, will be skilled in winning souls, insofar as he allows and prefers nothing whatsoever to Christ. The abbot must be skilled in winning souls for Christ. For this reason, he must seek to have a winning manner. He must be winsome. I once gave a talk to a, a group about the virtue of winsomeness. I don't know how, how St. Thomas, uh, under what category, winsomeness falls uh, in, in St. Thomas's scheme of things. Uh, but certainly, the abbot must make himself winsome, not to win souls to himself, but to win them for Christ. In a manner analogous to the charge of the bishop set over a local church, the abbot is set over a particular schola Christi, a microcosm of the greater church. In fact, and I often say this to our priest oblates, St. Benedict's doctrine on the abbot can be applied fittingly to any priest set over a portion of the flock of Christ. In this regard, the holy rule is particularly useful for bishops and for diocesan priests engaged in the parochial ministry. Nearly everything that St. Benedict teaches concerning the abbot can be applied to the ministry of a pastor of souls laboring in the vineyard of the Lord. And I must ask you to pray, speaking of our sacerdotal oblates, for uh, Brother John Fisher, Father McKeever, who was uh, appointed administrator of uh, the parish in which he was resident. Mm. You know that he's the, uh, the president of the tribunal in the primatial see in Armagh, but um, his parish priest had to be removed from office very suddenly, almost overnight. And as a result, there was no one to put into the parish. And Father McKeever is, is now not only president of the tribunal, but effectively parish priest, and feeling quite overwhelmed. So we wrote to you to ask for mm. prayers. So I ask you to, um, the number of priests under the age of 50 are very few, you see. In, in the Archdiocese of Armagh, and consequently it's becoming more and more difficult uh, to fill parish assignments. So if you keep Brother John Fisher in your prayer. The abbot is the mayor of the monastery. In fact, where uh, abbot Sir David Oswald Hunter-Blair translates a mayor, he translates it as superior. That word is not in the text. The word is mayor. Uh, just as the lord of a great house appoints one of his servants, Major Domo, setting him above all others in the household and authorizing him to act on his behalf, so does our Lord Jesus Christ constitute certain men his vicars in the household of God, in the church or in the monastery. These vicars of Christ 
are the bishops who rule over local churches, priests having the care of souls, and abbots set over monasteries. The abbot is also the spiritual father of his monks. In the natural order of things, the father engenders his sons. In the spiritual order of things, a family of brethren pray God to raise up one from among their number and under the impulse of the Holy Ghost call him Abba and Father, and this in reference to Christ. Christ, in the midst of his disciples, made known the Father. The Father is in me, and I in the Father. Christ, in all his words, in all his actions, in all his mysteries, is the revelation of the Father. If you had known me, says our Lord, you would without doubt have known my Father also. And from henceforth you shall know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us, Jesus said to him. Have I been so long a time with you, and have you not known me? Philip, he that seeth me, seeth the Father also. The abbot will reveal the fatherhood of God. And I have to interject here that for St. Benedict, Abba is a title given to Christ. A title given to Christ. And he, he uses the, the text of St. Paul in reference, not to God the Father, but in reference to Christ. And this uh, has to be linked up with um, uh, a notion that was widely received um, in monastic circles in the patristic age, and it, this, this had to do with the apostolic college constituting a kind of synobium with Christ as its abbot. And in fact, um, the Vita Apostolica is this life of the apostles gathered around Christ. Christ being, if you will, the proto-abbot. So we, we have to, and it's, it's very interesting also that in, in iconography, um, after the ascension, when the proto-abbot Christ ascends into heaven, the Blessed Virgin occupies his place in the midst of the apostolic college. And that's why our monastery is called Our Lady of the Center. It's, it's the mother of God, Abatisa Apostolorum, the abbess of the apostles, and taking her place uh, in Medio Ecclesiae. And, um, and Our Lady, Our Lady, the Immaculate Conception, uh, uh, seated in the midst of the apostles, is, uh, and this comes very close to something that St. Maximilian Colby said in that the great. Dominican Mariologist Father Montalbonani said uh, that in some way the Mother of God is the icon of the Holy Ghost in the Church. Very interesting. Uh, uh, that's something to be to be considered in case. Uh, 
The abbot would reveal the fatherhood of God only insofar as he remains united to Christ, Christ teaching, Christ shepherding, Christ praying, Christ healing. Even if we look at the life of St. Benedict, Christ exorcising through the abbot. It is unusual to hear today Christ addressed as Father. And yet, as I said, our Lord's relationship with the Apostles was a paternal one. This needs to be emphasized, especially today, given the cultural crisis of fatherhood. When one doesn't acknowledge the paternal quality of Christ, one tends to see him as a buddy. As, as a good mate, uh, as a friend, and uh, this is this is this I think is the danger of um, diminish of the uh, not giving sufficient attention to this paternal relationship of Christ with the apostles. The attachment of the apostles to Christ was filial, filial. You'll recall that after the resurrection. Our Lord addresses the apostles as children. Children. It's very significant in the fourth gospel. In the ancient church, it was customary to consider Christ, now this has to be understood correctly, the new Adam. If Christ is the new Adam, and Adam is the father of mankind, uh, Christ can be considered as father. Uh, this is related to Christ, the new Adam. Adam is father. Therefore, Christ is Father, because it is Christ who generates souls to newness of life. There's another passage in the Gospel. Jesus, again answering, said to them, Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. And again, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, whither I go you cannot come. So I say to you now, I will not leave you orphans. Orphans. I will not leave you orphans. Think of that. The orphan is deprived of the father. And our Lord says, I, I, will not leave you orphans. It's a very significant passage with regard to the fatherhood of Christ. Jesus therefore said to them, Children, have you any need? The answer him no. It is in faith that the abbot is believed to be Christ's vicar, participating in his fatherhood and in his lordship. And this is why St. Benedict says that the abbot is called both Lord and Abbot, because he participates in the fatherhood and the lordship of Christ. Faith is the hinge upon which hangs the whole doctrine of abbatial authority in the rule. In faith, the brethren look to their abbot as holding the place of Christ. And the abbot, for his part, makes of his whole life an uninterrupted act of faith in the grace of Christ at work in and through his weakness. If you think it takes faith for you to believe that the man sitting in this chair holds the place of Christ, know that it takes great faith for the man sitting in this chair to believe that he holds the place of Christ. So, so it's, it's all operative 
through faith. The abbot holds fast to the words of Christ to the apostle and to the apostle's words concerning himself. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for thee. I have to repeat this to myself. I don't know how many times a day. And even in the hours of the night, when I wake up worrying about different situations, I have to say, repeat the words of our Lord to the Apostle. My grace is sufficient for thee, for power is made perfect in infirmity. Addressing the portion of the church, the Ecclesiola, entrusted to him, the abbot learns to say with the apostle, I am jealous of you, with the jealousy of God. I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The abbot fulfills his role only insofar as he pours himself out for the souls in his care. The abbot must spend himself, spend himself. And this he does as doctor, by teaching, as physician of souls, by attending to the weak, the wounded, and the infirm among his sons, as pontiff, by giving himself to the opus dei with unflagging zeal, and by assiduous intercession for his sons, both before the most blessed sacrament and in secret, where only the Father sees him. I cannot emphasize enough the critical importance of the abbot's daily teaching. I know that in some other monasteries the abbot teaches in chapter only weekly or monthly or even four times a year in some monasteries. There may be historical explanations or compelling local circumstances behind such customs. For my part, in our monastery, I see the daily chapter as the principal means after the sacred liturgy by which our community can advance in wisdom and age and grace with God and men. In many monasteries, it's impossible to gather the whole community daily for the chapter. Um, in other monasteries, priests have uh, parochial duties, priests, monks, and so they're not able to come to the chapter. In our way of living uh, monastic life, we are enclosed, we're all present, and at least until now, we are all able to come daily to chapter. And so uh, I hold absolutely to uh, perfect attendance, uh, to use a term from school, perfect attendance at, at chapter. And I consider it so important that even when I'm absent, I ask Father Subprior to give the chapter in my place. I will not leave the community one day without teaching. All of this the abbot does without seeking to win approval or applause, and without calculating the measure of his service. He learns by the grace of Christ to say daily with St. Paul, but I most gladly will spend and be spent myself for your souls. Although loving you more, I be loved less.